You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So tell me about this uh, turkey hunt that you went on. Yeah, so I drew a – here in Utah, we have the option to apply for a limited entry uh, archery tag or a limited entry turkey tag, which is uh, like a week and a half before everybody else gets to hunt. And then you can buy a general over-the-counter tag if you don't draw for the later season, basically. So it's kind of two seasons. One's just a limited entry. So this is the third year in a row now that I've drew the limited entry tag, which is surprising. You know, most of the time you can draw it with a point. So every other year typically, but this is the third year in a row I've drew this particular tag and it was for the Southern unit of Utah. So it's about two, I went about two hours South of two and a half hours South of Salt Lake is kind of where I went. And this is an area, really the only area I know in there, it's where I kind of, I started turkey hunting with a buddy of mine who lives out here. And this, so this is the third year I've been into that area now. Um, a lot more snow this year than what's typically been. We've had a pretty wet winter, and even it snowed on me the first night I was down there. So my original plan was to go down, I guess, opening weekend and hunt for five days, basically. But we had a pretty big storm front that was going to push through, like, Sunday through Tuesday. So I just decided to abandon that idea and wait until the storm front passed on Tuesday and I was going to go down Tuesday at night and hunt through Sunday so when I ended up getting down there like I said it was spitting snow and probably 34 degrees Oof. and yeah it had been raining for the two days before basically and so going up to this is kind of you go past the wildlife management area and then you start up into National Forest and the road was actually pretty sketchy uh, so I actually when I got to the kind of the trailhead where most of the people would drop their horse trailers um, and take horses from there it was pretty sketchy to that point so I actually got out and walked on foot like the next half mile up to where I was planning on camping which was just below the snow line basically so snow line up there at the time was right around 7,000 feet so I was going to want to get to just below the snow line because I figured that's where most of the turkeys were going to be is right on the edge of that snow line and got up there and it was the roads were pretty sketchy uh it was a good me and the Tacoma kind of struggled up the hill to get up to the camp spot um it was pretty slick we went all over the roads and finally got up there and got set up 
and we were, I was had that rooftop tent that I've been using because um, that was kind of my plan was just to set up my rooftop tent from the truck and then hunt from the truck basically. And I was in the middle of setting up the rooftop tent, and I had birds come through at 30 yards from the tent basically, just gobbling away, walked right through where I was setting up camp. And I was like, it's <laughs> like, man, you know, I could chase after these turkeys, but these are the same turkeys I'm going to hunt in the morning, so I'm just going to let them go. So I actually just kind of jumped in the truck and closed the door and watched these turkeys go through. And about 20 minutes after the turkeys went through, there was like uh, probably 65 head of elk that came through 45 yards from camp, crossed right in front of me. So it was pretty cool to see they went up on the ridge and ended up getting set up that night. And I heard turkeys gobbling all night because it was a full moon that night. So I kind of had a pretty good idea where a couple different groups of turkeys was. And I kind of went with a different strategy than what I'd normally go with. Normally, you know, back east, I want to be under the birds at daylight and try to get that bird to fly down to me on the roost. But I've been doing that in this area for the past two years and just never seemed to have a whole lot of luck with it. So my strategy this year was actually got up, got on the tailgate, had some uh, dark timber vapor pack, cooked me some coffee and hot chocolate. And I just sat on the tailgate till probably, I don't know, 45 minutes after daylight. I let the light come up, listen to the birds gobble, and try to get an idea of which direction they were headed. So my plan was to try to cut them off and ambush them, basically. And they were actually headed from the drainage right at the snow line. They were actually coming back towards my camp. So I only had to go maybe three or 400 yards, crossed a big creek, and then got up onto this little flat and made my first set of the morning. And I could see the birds, I don't know, they were 65 yards away, kind of feeding down the hill towards me. I was like, man, this is going to work right off the bat. And so I'm calling and they're gobbling. And then I see a coyote come slipping in. And I was like, <laughs> ah, man, this coyote's hunting the same turkeys I am. And he was between me and the turkeys. So they kind of they kind of shut up. So I kept calling, trying to coax a coyote to come towards me instead of spooking all the birds out. So I kept calling. And finally, I seen the coyote come back in again. He was like 35 yards and I debated for the longest time on whether to shoot this coyote or not. <laughs> he was a a wet, dirty-looking dog. I mean, he looked miserable. And I ended up keeping him in the little opening that I was in. I didn't set up a decoy um, at this set because I just could see the birds on the opposite hill. So I didn't set up a decoy, and I kept him in this little clearing that I was in for probably 25 minutes. Um, the birds had shut up, so I figured he'd kind of spook them. But I just kept calling to this coyote, just kind of keep his interest around me so he wouldn't go try to find the other birds. He kept looking for me, and he ended up walking by me at like nine yards. And I was like, man, I should just shoot this coyote. But I ended up letting him go. Um, I'm kind of partial to coyotes to a degree. So I let him go, and he ended up slipping around behind me and getting downwind of me, and I heard him just haul out of there. So once he slipped off the other way, I kind of decided to go up to the top of the hill above where the turkeys were originally to try to get an idea of where they had went from there. So it took me, I don't know, 10 minutes to get up to the top of the hill. And once I got up to the top of the hill, I just kind of waited and I could hear them gobbling down below me. And I had a pretty good idea of where they were going. So it's really weird here because in the East you have kind of thick timber. So you have to like cross a ravine or cross a draw. It's pretty easy to do without the turkey seeing you. Whereas out here, it's like a low scrub brush, so it's maybe six feet tall, so it's pretty open. 
if you have to go 400 yards to where the turkey's on that hillside, you know, they can see you pretty easy because it's so open. Uh-huh. So I kind of had to pick and choose when I could move and when I couldn't move based on where I thought these birds were, given I couldn't see them, but I knew that they could see across the hill to me. So I kind of stuck in the shadows and moved my way down, um, got to the bottom, crossed the creek again, and then raced up the hill because there's a a meadow up on the hill that I hunted a couple years prior, and I always seemed to be turkeys moved through it in the mid-morning. It had a watering trough in it for the cattle that was up there for the free range. And so I'm busting my butt trying to get up this hill to try to get up there, and I encounter some turkeys right at a barbed wire fence, a couple hens. And so I pop out of the trees, and luckily they had their heads down when I seen them, so they threw their heads up, and they weren't but maybe seven yards away. So I was stopped, you know, midway in step with my gun and everything. And so I spent ten minutes waiting on them dang things to wander off. I had never really figured out what I was, but they were – a little leery of what was going on. So once they moved off, I could hear the birds had gotten really close to this opening that I was wanting to get into. So I slipped into the, the back side of this opening on the very back corner of it. And I was trying to get my decoys set up, trying to get my little stool set up and everything just started going downhill from there. I started dropping <laughs> all kinds. I mean, it sounded like I was rattling the woods apart in there. Uh, set my chair up set down in it and it just literally sinks all the way down into the mud i fall in the water so i roll over and i'm cussing i look over and my decoys laid over because the weight of it tipped over in the mud so i'm like oh man so i walk back out there and set my decoy back up and then shuffle back into the into the little patch of trees i was trying to hide in i was like i'm just gonna have to sit in the muddy water basically at this point so i pull my little two inch foam seat out from my turkey vest and sit it in and within a minute my butt is wet like I'm <laughs> sitting in water at this point I'm just like well I'm already here I might as well stick it out and so I just give a couple yelps and it wasn't 10 seconds and a hen walks out into this opening and I was thinking how, where in the world has this turkey been because I've been beating this thing up for the past 15 minutes so I have no idea this turkey must have been watching me and so she comes out, it's a hen, she comes out and starts cackling. So I cackle back at her for probably 20 minutes. And then this group of birds I can hear just up above us hammer off. And then they come easing down and she actually starts to work away from the birds, which kind of played to my favor because that brought them right out into the opening. Yeah. And so I can see them working down off my left and so they come out, and I was like, man, it's a bunch of jakes. I was like, I don't really want to shoot a jake. I might shoot a jake. And so they come in, and they're strutting and fighting with each other. And the biggest one walks out, and he's like, I don't even know, seven yards from me. And I'm just like, oh, well, I'll go ahead and shoot this jake. So I went ahead and shot him, and he was, uh, like I said, he may have only been seven yards from me when I shot him. And he – just dropped he didn't kick didn't flinch didn't do anything so the other birds just started gobbling so i just kept calling to them and i played with them for probably another 20 minutes but he was like a five and a half inch jake four and a half inch jake he was a a pretty decent jake his tail feathers were couldn't hardly tell that there he had the typical jake fan to him um, because he was it was an old bird for being a jake he was a early spring bird from last year though yeah, I was going to say, when I remember looking at the picture, it didn't immediately strike me that that was even a Jake. Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to tell. He was a little wet um, given the precipitation, but he was 
uh, right on the edge of a Jake. Like I said, his tail, you can't see that yep. defined two-inch yeah. jump. But you can just barely see that it's a, a little bit of a difference between and his primaries there on his tail. Is that ASAT leafy suit? Is that like a that coverall is. or is that a two-piece? No, it's it's the pants and the, the jacket. Um, I'm a big fan of the their leafy suit. Uh, you know, it's something I really like, and so I threw it on, especially for turkeys, and then just run my Kuyu gaiters over the top of it so the bottom of it wouldn't get all wet from the snow. And Oh, okay. As I say, it looks pretty good. Yeah, it worked, it worked pretty well. I was right at the – so the snow line was about 7,000 feet. I ended up killing that bird at about – probably about 68 or 6,900 feet. So I was right at the edge of the snow line um, with that bird, which I was surprised they were that high. Do you feel like – How much snow was up there? Do you feel like they get – well, I suppose the, they have, probably haven't had much pressure at all yet this year because you got the early, the early hunt. Yeah, not they don't get a whole lot of pressure, but last year when I was there, I was there opening weekend last year, and there was quite a few people around, and, you know, we're not – I mean, the worst part is there's a lot of access in that area, so it's pretty close to roads. So a lot of people from the town nearby will come up and hunt them before work and after work and things like that. So they do get a little bit of pressure, but you do have to draw. So that was the big benefit of it is, you know, I was out there middle of the week, uh, the first week, I guess, and I didn't – I seen – two other people and one of them was trail running and one of them was on a horseback just going for a ride so i didn't see any other turkey hunters while i was there so do you think your strategy of not hunting the roost and just waiting for it to get light do you think that was part of i think what played into your success or do you think you might have still also done well if you would have went back into the roost again i really do i think it paid off well uh, a lot of this so there's not a whole lot of roost trees in this area because most everything they roost in are kind of taller pine trees. And they're typically, you know, maybe a lone one here and there, but then they're clustered kind of in the, the bottoms. So the problem with the bottom is that if you set up directly across from them, you're probably straight line only 50 to 60 yards from the bird. But a lot of the other habitat that's around there is a, you know, maybe a, six to ten foot scrub oak so there's real no easy way to walk in there you're making all kinds of noise trying to get in there because it's so thick that i think the birds even when on the roost they can hear you coming in even though they may never see you they can hear all that ruckus trying to come through that brush to these small little openings and you know these small openings are probably only a lot of them are probably maybe 40 by 60 maybe um, but they're just sp scattered in this scrub oak brush. So I think once, you know, waiting till the birds got on the ground and then trying to figure out which way they were moving to cut them off in these different openings paid off a lot more than trying to go in and and making a lot of noise and alerting these birds that I was even there um, on when they were on the roost, basically. Yeah, it makes sense. And, I mean, if you think about it, even out east, that's a strategy that should be able to work fine as provided that you have the land and the access to be able to move around once you figure out where those birds are going, which obviously out west there's a lot more land, so you get a lot more freedom to be able to do that. Yeah, in the east, to the degree, you know, it's all a mixed hardwood, so there's really no no real reason why a, a turkey's going to go to a particular area unless it's like a strut zone and it likes to go to that particular area, but they can kind of meander throughout, whereas here they tend to go to these 
little pockets of openings basically so they move between pocket to pocket through this scrub brush so if you can kind of get an idea of the direction of travel you can get to one of these little meadow openings basically and set up in it knowing that the turkey's going to probably come by pretty close Compared to, I guess, last year, I remember you telling me last year that when you were out there, it seemed like from an audit, from an audio perspective, like the sound carried in goofy ways and bounced off the canyons and it was really tough to kind of pinpoint where birds are gobbling from. Did you feel like that was kind of the same deal this year or did you feel like the way that you set up made it a little bit easier to figure out where birds were located? Uh, it's definitely different, especially kind of where they roost. Um, you know, birds gobbling on the roost, it kind of makes it difficult to pinpoint exactly, you know, which drainage you're in or even, you know, what side of the drainage they're on. But to me, once waiting until they kind of got away from the roost sites made it a little bit easier to dictate where the birds were with the direction that they were moving in because it kind of got them out of those those steep bottoms with the banks pretty sharp on each side. So when they'd gobble, you know, facing away from you, it'd sound like they were facing you or closer because it was just such a steep bank that it would echo right back to you really easy. Um, compared to most of the time, a bird facing away from you gobbling, he sounds he's a lot farther away. So kind of once they got off the roost side, I think it's really what made the, the big difference for me. Okay, that makes sense. And I suppose once you kind of get close to them and make your initial moves, then it becomes a lot more straightforward, especially when you get on some of those flats. Yeah, you get an idea of, you know, kind of where the bird is on the hillside. You can kind of, you know, I use Onyx maps to pull up, look, okay, hey, I think the birds are in this opening. What's the next opening I think they're going to go to? Or, hey, they're already leaving this opening, so they're coming into the opening that's 30 yards in front of me. Basically, I need to bust it to get into there. Um, and I, to me, it worked really well, better than what's worked for me in the past of trying to set up on them on the roost in these openings that are really close to the the roost site. And, you know, we've had opportunities where it's like, you know, we've watched birds fly into these openings in the morning, they fly up from them in the evenings, and we're like, all right, yeah, it's a great place to be. But I think we just made so much noise trying to get into there, into these openings, that the turkeys knew something wasn't right there and opted to go a different direction. Are there any areas or obstacles that are sort of impassable, like little, you know, creek drainages that are, you know, 10 foot steep banks and you can't go ahead and cross them? Or is it all pretty walkable, just thick in some areas with that scrub oak? No, it's, there's some pretty good creek crossings in these, in these heavy draws, basically, where you're getting a lot of snow runoff. So, uh, the first creek crossing I had to cross, it was probably, oh, I'd guess it, eight feet wide at the narrowest point and was probably two and a half feet deep and the turkeys crossed this twice uh so you know if everything you hear in the east they won't cross a creek crossing you know we've all seen it multiple times if a lot of birds hang up on things like that these turkeys it didn't seem to phase them i mean when i was calling that coyote at the same point the creek was maybe 20 yards behind me and all I could hear was roaring water for the most of the time. So, I mean, it, it was obviously difficult to hear the birds from down there, but it's just where I had to set up initially. I can think of a couple places in Wisconsin where I've hunted them on like a canyon. You got a real steep cut with a creek that's probably a couple hundred feet in elevation below kind of where the top is. And those turkeys will pitch across like it's nothing going from one side to the other. So I wonder if it's something that has to do with them like either being right close to the level of the water that makes it them less likely to want to cross it versus if it's just going from, you know, 
kind of dry ground to, to dry ground with just air underneath? Yeah, could very well be. I mean, like I said, a lot of these are, are steep gulches. So on each side, you know, you may, you may drop 10 to 12 feet in elevation and then have to cross, cross the creek and then go up another steep bank on the other side just to get out of the creek bottom. Basically, that's not including the rest of the, the slope of the hill, you know. Yeah. So a lot of times you may be dropping 60 to 70 feet to cross a 12 foot creek to go back up 60 or 70 feet. So like you said, it may be easier just for them to two flaps of the wings and they're across the creek. Whereas, you know, being flat level ground where a creek's three feet across, you know, they don't want to have to try to walk across that compared to it's easier just to pitch that 70 feet. So is it pretty hard to, I guess, travel on that terrain with being kind of wet and muddy? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty slick. Um, you know, not a whole lot of whole lot of traction for the most part, and so that was the hard part. Is you're trying to climb these hills and you're using every scrub oak limb possible to try to pull yourself up. So you didn't have like trekking poles or anything. You think that would have made a difference and making it easier to walk? So, in the years previously, normally I would just take my uh, XO, my pack, my 3500, and that's what I would hunt out of. But this year, I just opted straight for my Eastern Turkey vest. So I had a um, bottomland hardwood turkey vest on and that's kind of what I opted I just stuffed as much gear in that as possible I was like all right this is what I'm going to go with left the trekking poles at the truck but I do think trekking poles would have made a huge difference in this just because of how slick it was gotcha yeah I could I never used to think that they were that nice to have or that important until I actually started to use them or until I actually didn't have them and wished I would have had them on like some of those steep slopes after for the snow melts and it's real slick and kind of snotty ground. And yeah, it, it's a, you don't think you need it until you need it. And then you realize how valuable they can be. Especially the mud that just cakes the treads of your boots and basically makes it like you're wearing soulless boots at that point. Right. You know, once that binds up, you're in trouble at that point. Cause it's just slipping and sliding the whole time. So then with your Eastern Turkey vest, did you just throw the whole bird in the back and just walk the whole thing out? I just threw it over my shoulder and walked the whole thing out, which was a pain going through a lot of that scrub oak. I just kind of had to try to find a elk trail and pick it and walk it, and I'd be going the wrong direction until I found a fork that'd take me in the right direction. So it probably took me, I don't know, I was maybe a mile, a little over a mile from the truck, and it probably took me, I don't know, quite a quite a bit of time because I was just trying to pick elk trails to walk down of, um, hoping I'd find a shed along the way, but no such luck. Do you think it's more popular for – guys out in the mountains to try and like kind of debone or, or backpack out their birds after cleaning them in the field versus just carrying out the entire bird? Um, I could see it being, being beneficial, um, especially in that terrain. I mean, if the snow line was higher, it probably would have been a lot more of an option for me was to, would have been to dress the bird in the field before packing it out. Uh, but given kind of how low the snow line was, it was, you know, wasn't too bad for me just to pack it out. Gotcha. Well, yeah, for, for me, my first season wasn't nearly that eventful as yours. Um, prior to the season starting, it seemed like it was going to be pretty good. Um, I roosted a whole bunch of birds, um, and a lot of them were in locations that I've kind of historically heard them or, or roosted them in the past. So I kind of had an idea of where I might be able to set up. And I only had the opportunity to hunt kind of the opening morning and then like the next Friday. So we opened on a Wednesday. 
get there Wednesday morning. There's already two vehicles in the place that I roosted a lot of the birds. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'm not going to try and fight over the same birds um, that these guys probably are. And I uh, went off and, and tried to do my own thing. And, and that morning there wasn't much. Friday morning, same thing. Got there about 45 minutes earlier. Still two other vehicles in the, the same spot that I had roosted most of the birds. Um, and so I went into an area where it was kind of like plan B. Like I roosted one bird in this plan B spot, but it wasn't nearly as many as the, the plan A spot. And so I got back in there and, uh, I did hear like a couple faint gobbles, um, but they were all kind of off on private land. And this is like over a mile back from the parking lot. Um, and not even that long after daybreak, I could hear a guy on the trail behind me, you know, yelping as he was walking down the trail. So it, it was like kind of a common theme in this, uh, state forest that I was in that, you know, they have these horse trails and stuff that are going through there. And I don't think there was out of, you know, all the miles that I put on over those couple of days scouting and, and actually hunting. I don't think there was a single piece of trail that didn't have some kind of, you know, human traffic on it, be it boot tracks or horse tracks or mountain bike tires or anything like that. Um, and on that Friday, I ended up calling in a couple of hens just in that plan B spot that I was, I had set up and called and ended up having a hen come through all by herself. I'm like, all right, here we go. She's got to have that gobbler on her and, uh, no such luck. So she ended up, um, you know, bouncing off and I, I actually, she went through once and then I called her back in when the sun was up and then shining off my face. And then she saw me the second time she came in and mm -hmm. took off. So then it was kind of like, well, you know, beautiful weather over the weekend. Do I want to hunt the weekend in the same area and just keep running and gunning and, and hope that I get on something? Uh, or do I want to get some deer scouting in? Um, so we, I took Sam and we went down to Southeast Minnesota and just put a whole weekend on boots on the ground down in the, the hills down there. And I felt like that was probably more valuable use of my time. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Because we still have the opportunity to fill that Minnesota tag during the last week of the season. Um, so it's kind of like, well, I got several Wisconsin tags left to fill and kind of unlimited tags if I choose to buy them in Wisconsin. So not filling that Minnesota tag the first week wasn't that big of a deal. And if I do decide to hunt it the last week, then there's for sure going to be less competition, less other hunters in the woods. Um, and I should be able to get on some unpressured birds. And it seemed like you guys had a fair amount of snow. We did. We had, that. we had was it eight or nine inches a few days before the season started. But it did melt for the most part pretty much entirely before the actual opening day. Hmm. Yeah, I just seen the the video you posted with the the barred owls, and it seemed like you had better luck calling barred owls in than turkeys. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we roosted a couple birds in that spot. The interesting thing was that even with those owls making all that racket, you know, we had gotten a turkey to gobble before those owls flew in, and he just gobbled once. And then those owls flew in and started making all that noise. And through all that entire time, I think we heard him gobble one more time oh. through that entire sequence. So that was kind of like, yeah, this it's, uh, it's definitely, it makes you wonder how many times you go and roost birds and they're there, but they just don't respond to what you're putting out. We went back the other day, like right before the season. And, um, I had nothing respond to the owl hooters nothing responded to my goose calls and then I took out the coyote howler and then they like four of them gobbled to that like all in the same spot just one locator after another just, just kind of going through all of them trying to get you know something 
and it was the coyote hauler that did it. I think turkeys really take to particular pitches or particular tones of sounds to kind of what they like. You know, with the turkeys that I had, I was using one particular slate call and wasn't having a whole lot of results getting the birds to gobble back on that slate call. And then I pulled out my other slate call and it was a completely different tune. And, you know, every time I'd yelp on that, they would answer. And it was just a matter of switching calls to get a little bit of different sound coming from it. So I think the same thing you're talking about is even with, you know, roosting birds. Like I said, I think a coyote howl could get a certain bird to gobble more than a barred owl call or um, a goose call or a peacock call or whatever people use to get birds to <laughs> gobble nowadays. It's frustrating because it's it's like you would want to be able to just kind of go minimalist and carry the least amount of calls in the woods. Like if I could just go into the woods and just carry a mouth call and not have to worry about carrying a box call or, or a pot call at all, that'd be great. Uh, but it just, like you said, there's so many times when one doesn't work and the other does, even if that first call sounds better to your ear, might not be what that turkey wants to respond to. Yeah. I only run three calls. I only take three calls with me to the woods and two of those are slate calls. And then one of them is, I don't even know what you would call it. It's like a, it's supposed to be like a box call, but it's more of like a, so it's a cylinder disc, like a, um, a dip can or a skull can. Yeah. And it's made of cedar on both sides. And it's got a piece of, uh, I guess it's like PVC pipe cut about a half inch thick, except for, I'd probably say it's, I don't know, seven eighths of the, the actual pipe. And so there's one little opening and you have a little, two and a half three inch long cedar rod and you hold it in an angle and yelp on it and it's a lot like a box call and the volume of it and the tone and pitch of it and those are the only three calls that i carry with me in the woods and i only carry one striker so i think i've seen those before um i don't remember what they're called either but i know what you're talking about i picked it up at a sporting show in arkansas one time and i it's worked well for me because i just hate box calls because they're hard to keep quiet in your pocket and this works well because you can just separate the the rod from the actual call. And I'm the only the only problem with me for having calls that are two pieces like that is I always lose one of the pieces. <laughs> I can't tell you how many strikers that I've lost in the woods that just those turkey vests they always they hold onto the peg and not the handle, and it doesn't take much for those things to fall out. I've lost one striker in the woods. Otherwise, I'd carry two strikers with me. That was I don't even remember how many years ago now I lost it. Um. But something I do, I use a, you know, like a, a Brillo pad to rough up the slate on my call. Yep. And I don't even know where I got it. I bought a piece of the material, like what's on a Brillo pad. It was like a 12 by 12 inch piece of material. So I actually cut a disc that perfectly fits on top of my slate call. And then I just use a rubber band around that. So every time I move, I'll put that over my slate call. And then that way, right before I get ready to pull it out, I just rub the two together to clean my slate call off. And then I'll run it across my striker a few times. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, it seems like I have the most issues with the pot calls when it's early morning. For whatever reason, I don't know, I don't know why it is, but whenever I try and run that thing first thing in the morning, like off the roost or something, I get squeaks. I get, you know, it's noise. It's the humidity, the moisture in the air. But I'm even, even with like glass calls or crystal calls, like it's still, I get those kind of issues and then come 10, 11 o'clock the things barking like, you know, like normal and making a whole bunch of noise, nice clear notes. 
See, I'm just, I'm horrible with a mouth call, so there's no point in me even taking a mouth call with me because it sounds like a dead turkey trying to come back to life, and it's horrible. <laughs> so I don't even opt for that. I'm not good either, but I feel like I've finally gotten to the point where I at least sound more like a turkey than another hunter. Because <laughs> I, when you're in the woods with that many other hunters, it's like it's blatantly obvious when some of these guys are running mouth calls. You can tell right away. It, it cracks me up. Even elk hunting out here, you know, you'll be out with somebody and you'll hear a bugle or something and they're like, oh, and they can tell you what kind of call that came from. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you, what do you mean? How How do you know? Or that's, he's like, oh, that's, you know, that's Jake. And it's like, how the heck do you know who that is? It's like, oh yeah, we elk hunt together. He's, you know, he's over in this area today. I can tell that's his bugle. I'm like, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? So it's, it's really interesting how, you know, each person and the way each person sounds and your average hunter i think what on the born and raised series they call them doug fluties <laughs> you know so how many doug fluties there are and how you can get you know pick a hunter out compared to an actual bird yeah it's like there's the guys that can run mouth calls really good i have a, a tough time telling the difference between them and actual turkeys the guys that can run pot calls really good i have a tough time box calls even like some guys that run it really well if it's a long distance like the yelps can sound pretty good um but usually like the cadence is a dead giveaway like if a guy's yelping too yeah. fast it's like you know it's honor yeah or especially if you're close like especially with the slate calls or the pot calls you can hear the the striker hit yeah. the the plate before they actually start calling it's like dink and it's like that was obvious the same thing with a, a box call you know you can hear them chopping before they're even actually starting to make noise yeah, when I run my box calls, I don't even lift the paddle off of the, the base. I just slide it back and forth. That seems to sound a lot more natural. But yeah, I, I know a lot of people will pick them up and try to put them down, and you can hear it. Yeah. I, I think for, for cutting, I think I like the pot calls the best. I think they have the most realistic represent or realistic sounding cuts. Um, but for, for yelps, I, I think mouth call and and box are maybe a little bit better to my ear. I'm just, yeah, I'm horrible at all of it. I'm tone deaf. I can't hardly hear anything anyways the way it is. So for me, I just I just run a, a slate call, and I I feel like I can do a good purr, some clucks, some yelps. I feel like I can do pretty good, but I don't know. I don't listen to myself from a distance. Yeah. So I'm probably that Doug Flutie to somebody, I'm sure. I almost feel like, like uh, I, I almost feel like if a bird is close enough, that it can hear me purring and clucking on a, a pot call. Like he's, he's probably so close unless there's a lot of foliage, like he's almost in range, you know, but that being said, when that hen came in the second time, I was just kind of playing around with the, the pot call and doing some purring and, and, you know, clucking. And then she started yelping on her own and cutting. And I wasn't sure if it was in response to what I was doing because I didn't think it was loud enough for her to hear, or if she just randomly happened to be doing it on her own and came back through the area. There's got to be something said for being able to, you know, because with a pot call or a slate call, you know, your hands are occupied. You got to hold your shotgun. You got to keep your shotgun up, you know, and then if you do get that bird to come in, now your hands aren't even on the gun, much less maybe not even pointed in the right direction. So it's got to be something said to be able to, once you get a bird coming, be able to switch to a mouth call and coax it in the rest of the way with the mouth call so that you are ready. You know, with me, I just, the way I prop my gun up was I had the, 
gun basically laid horizontal across my shoulder blade or my shoulder, my collarbone. And so the gun was laid over sideways and I just had my hands right underneath it. So it wasn't much movement to get to my gun. Yeah. That's, that's probably the biggest advantage I think of a mouth call is that when they're close, you can just run that without making any movement. Well, like that, I don't know if you saw that video of the chain poster from Nebraska earlier this spring where he had a bunch of jakes come in and start harassing his decoy and the toms and the rest of the hens were still, you know, 80, 100 yards behind those jakes and he was still able to call behind his face mask and get those birds to keep responding and eventually work their way in. Whereas if he had had a, a friction call, he was trying to run those jakes and have picked them off. Yeah. That's a, uh, something to really be said and I just you know haven't mastered it. I don't turkey hunt enough um, to really care enough to learn I guess um, you know the pot calls have always worked well for me and if a bird busts me a bird busts me can you out call pretty good no <laughs> no I was gonna say that if you can do one good I almost feel like you can do the other one good or Maybe not exactly one-to-one, but I feel like the people that are really good with one can usually do, like, just about anything with any kind of species with the right mouth call. See, I've always heard from people out here that if you learn to elk call first, then you can be a good elk caller and turkey caller. If you learn to turkey call first, you can't be a good elk caller because you're, I guess the way they use the reed is different for elk than it is from turkey but i guess if you start on a turkey using it like you would for a turkey it's it's hard to get your brain to switch to the way you would use it for an elk well that's what everybody out here tells me so it's an opposite motion with a with an elk bugle you start with a a low pressure low tongue pressure and you build that up and then build out the air volume with with a turkey call you start with the highest air pressure and let it roll off so i can definitely see how it's different there yeah i think joel turner talks about that like in his elk calling classes you know if somebody's used the turkey call before it's so much harder to teach him to call elk huh i don't know i've heard chain elk bugle on a turkey call and he sounded halfway decent i've heard of coyote <laughs> howl on a turkey call like the guy can do pretty much anything with a mouth call <laughs> one of the guys that i hunt with out here he does a lot of coyote work out here and that man can coyote howl with his voice that will make you plug your ears at three feet because it is so loud. And he just <laughs> uses his voice. No calls, nothing. And he will get every coyote and turkey in the county to respond to him. <laughs> I envy those guys that can mouth call really good with those locators. There's guys that can owl hoop pretty good too. I feel like, yeah. well, for one, I, I'd feel strange just like practicing that in, in my house, you know. I don't. <laughs> I go around work all day hooting half the time. Yeah, you work outside, so that's... I do. <laughs> so nobody hears me. Yeah, I'm actually... Yeah, I'd, I'm going to... When I was uh, in Arkansas, I turkey hunted with a guy that could owl hoot with the best of them with just his mouth. Um, but he was a a Wonder Bread guy, so he drove around in his Wonder Bread truck hooting to himself all the time. And that man could... <laughs> That man could call it any owl out there. Yeah, I feel like I can do like a hoot that kind of sounds like a hoot with my voice, but compared to what I can do with a call, it doesn't sound anywhere close to the same. The roll is what gets me in the hoot. Yeah. Like transitioning to that is what I always screw up. Well, some guys do it with their throat, but I do it with my tongue. Yeah, I have to do it with my tongue. 
Just like you're making like an R sound with like a Spanish right. word. Yeah. Yeah. I think James Harrison does it with his throat. And I saw that on a video. And I mean, it sounds good. But I, I feel like if a guy does it pretty good with his tongue, it sounds good too. And obviously the owls like probably can't. Even listening to the owls themselves, they all kind of sound a little bit different. Some of them don't yeah. don't roll off at, at all at the end of their hoots. And some of them do. And some of them roll really short. And some of them they really extend that last note. When I was in college, we used to have these um, competitions every year, if you'll call it that, for uh, wildlife competitions. So we had like, it was called the Southeastern Wildlife Conclave. So it was like Wildlife Olympics, basically, uh-huh. where you'd get a bunch of schools together and you'd compete in different things. And that may be like radio telemetry tracking, uh, trap ID. And one thing we always did was we'd do like calls. So you would have a different calling things and one of them was just like a freestyle so you could get up there and and do whatever with your voice that you could do and there were some people in there that could do some hoots um eastern screech owls uh, all kinds of crazy noises with their voice and it was amazing to hear what people could do with their voice yeah it's that'd be a a fantastic skill to have and I, i wonder if some of those people can just do it or if they if it takes some like amount of practice and most people would be able to do it if they put the time in. I'm sure. I mean, to a degree, there's people who can like hear a sound and replicate it. And then there's people like me who just no way in heck I could ever do half that stuff. Yeah. But if you practiced every day for a month, maybe you'd be able to do it. I remember when I was a kid, um, I cannot think of the dude's name off the top of my head he used to work for the Missouri Department of Conservation and he traveled around and he did basically that he was a he could replicate all these different sounds with his voice and he was like a a Missouri Department of Conservation educational guy or whatever and I cannot think of his name but if I could if I can find it and think of it we'll link it in the thing if I can find like a YouTube video of him he could do like multiple gobbles at once. He could do all kinds of things with his voice. Um, and it was amazing at what he could do with his voice. You could just, like, I can remember sitting, sitting around and somebody, he'd be like, all right, somebody give me an animal. And you could just shout out an animal and he would replicate what that animal sounded like just off the top of his head. And he, you know, he was an old farmer, grew up in the grew up in the woods and I guess that's all he did as a kid was just listen to what was out there and replicate it and ended up being a conservation agent from it. Huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. If you find out his name, I wonder if there's like any YouTube videos. Ralph Duran, I believe is his name. I just Googled it. Okay. There's some videos on YouTube of like Preston Pittman doing voice turkey calls. It's, I, I, don't, I mean, I, I mean, after you listen to some of these beatbox people or whatever, it's like, how did they make these noises? So I guess people can do the same thing with animal noises. That's a good point. <laughs> you never know what what we're capable of, I guess. So well, I'm starting to get a little bit excited because this week is my next tag, which is the Wisconsin sea season. And uh, I'm hunting with Shane Wednesday, Thursday. So by the time this podcast launches, we best case scenario we'll have two birds on the ground hopefully so that should be fun gonna do some hill country bounced around it's gonna rain a little bit i think but we'll work around the rain and 
see what we can make happen. Yeah, unfortunately, mine's my season here at Utah is over, so I only get one bird out here. Um, I think maybe next year I may go back to Missouri and hunt turkeys for a couple weeks down in there because it's there is really weird. You can only kill one bird the first week of season, and then you can kill your second bird after the first week of season, or you can kill both birds after the first week of season. Well, there's a lot of birds pretty close to where I was deer hunting. <laughs> yeah, that there is. <laughs> that one morning I sat up and they were like, I, I was set up right in the middle of their roost. Like, I thought you blew them all out of the tree because that's no, all I, I could hear behind me was just turkeys going to town. I was like, man, what did he do? No, I didn't. I didn't blow them out of the roost. They, they knew I was there. They stayed in the roost while I climbed the tree in the dark <laughs> and I uh, got all set up. And, you know, as soon as it started getting light, they were putting. So they're, they like knew there was danger there. They're just getting ready to fly down. As soon as they flew down, they flew all over the place. Uh, but then not too long after that, I think it was a separate group of turkeys that was roosted somewhere else. They came in and they started fighting. There's a bunch of fighting purrs and, and clucking. And that's probably what you were hearing. Yeah. I was just like, man, what in the world is going on over there? So, yeah, hopefully you guys get some birds put down by the time this releases. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. For sure. So you out for, you going to hold out for a good gobbler or are you whatever is eatable, mm. edible? guess it depends. Depends on how late we are into the trip and um, what the weather's looking like. I'd prefer to hold out for a tom, but. I guess we'll, I don't we'll see. I'm not. I'm not anti. I'm not anti Jake by any means. But if I feel like I, I got a decent shot at a time, I'll I'll shoot one. I didn't discriminate. He ate well. Yeah. So. Yeah, but they don't weigh as much. They don't get as nope, much no. as much meat off of them. I, I got quite a bit of meat off that bird. I'll give it credit. I was surprised more than I was expecting, honestly. But yeah, I wonder how much difference there is between like a an older Jake and like a younger two year old gobbler. You know. I wouldn't imagine it'd be too terribly much, but I never weighed. I don't think I've weighed any of my turkeys that I've ever shot, but the biggest one I shot was one in Wisconsin that had three beards and I think like an inch and a quarter spurs somewhere right around there. That's probably a heavier bird. I wonder what that is, like the weight of your the weight of your turkey and then the weight of like your dress turkey. So if you breast it out and take the thighs off of it, what is the weight of that compared to the overall weight of the turkeys? Like what percentage of, of meat are you going to get off that turkey? I don't know. It's an interesting question. We'll have to find out. I'll, I'll let you know at the end of the week. Yeah. <laughs> weigh it, weigh it, then butcher it, and then weigh it again. And we'll get an idea of percent loss to the turkey from feathers and carcass and are we, everything else. Are we counting gizzard and... All the other little edibles uh, inside. I mean, if you're if you're into eating that kind of stuff, then I think Shane eats the gizzards. Sure. I haven't tried one yet. Usually no. request them, and then I'll let them have it. <laughs> That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby and myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. If you're looking at getting a new bow, make sure to give Newbreed Archery a look. They are a direct-to-consumer manufacturer that allows you to customize your bow online and have it shipped right to your door. Use the code DIYSportsman for $50 off 
And with that, thanks for listening.